Kaiser says Diana, marry an author of Oh Love How Deep. You're listening to Pints with Jack. But let us thank God that we are still very far from travel to other worlds. I've wondered before now whether the vast astronomical distances may not be God's quarantine precautions. They prevent the spiritual infection of a fallen species from spreading. This is Pints with Jack, Season 6, Episode 25, After Hours with the Lesser Known Lewis Podcast. Hello everyone. Here on Pints with Jack, we are reading our way to the works of C.S. Lewis. I'm David, and this season we find ourselves among the stars, reading through the first of C.S. Lewis's science fiction trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet. Today, I am talking to the co-hosts of the Lesser Known Lewis podcast, and in today's episode, the co-hosts will be telling us about themselves and their podcast, and I'll also be picking their brain about a couple of essays related to the book of this season, Out of the Silent Planet. The first co-host is Jordan. Jordan is a famously sought-after bachelor. He is an excellent youth worker and worship leader. He is the sort of scholar that spreads J.I. Packer on toast and the kind of science fiction fan who drinks a pint of Cylon's blood for breakfast. (laughs) And the second co-host is Sean, who is president of Eastern College, where he and Jordan became friends. And he is married to Melissa, and they have three young children together. He is the sort of avid hunter who has organ meat on toast and the kind of spiritual leader who drinks a pint of Celtic monk's blood for breakfast. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. (laughs) Thank you, David. It is great to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure. We should mention that Sean and I uh, wrote each other's infos. (laughs) I I don't claim for myself to be a famously sought after bachelor. Oh, Jordan, don't lie. I know that you demanded that that be in your intro for everybody to hear. Yeah, no, it's true. We did that little shout out to to our friends um, in uh, in Out of the Silent Planet. Well, Matt has been single for the entirety of the time that we've done Pints for Jack, and I keep promising to find him uh, a bride. So that's hope for you yet, Jordan. Yeah. I thought maybe he needed some competition in the Lewis podcast dating world. <laughs> you two could go out clubbing together. I'm sure it'd be great. Yeah. You need a wingman. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Well, since we are recording on Ash Wednesday, today I am drinking a very penitential glass of water. It's tepid. It's not even cold. Although it is in a Pints for Jack glass, which makes it non-penitential mm. because it improves the taste by about 20 to 30% for any liquid. Uh, are you guys drinking anything? Mm. <laughs> well, I was going to follow Matt's lead because he's kind of given permission to drink scotch during Lent on former episodes, but I decided it would be best if I didn't. And so I did the next best thing. I got a a Twining's tea and I don't know how to pronounce it. Lapsang Sushong, Mm -hmm. I think. It's a pretty pretty smoky tea. So it's kind of scotch-like. It's the Lafroig of teas. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The scotch of the tea world. (laughs) How about you, Sean? Uh, yeah, and I'm I'm drinking a Mexican hot chocolate. I don't know if they're called that everywhere, but it's uh, it's just your regular kind of cocoa and whatnot with Mexican nice. chili powder in it as well. And that felt like a good, yeah, Lent Ash Wednesday afternoon <laughs> kind of drink. Well, today's episode is going to be coming out on the YouTube channel a few days before we release episode 12 of our audio podcast, where we actually toast in Turkish. However, since Sean actually lived in Turkey, I would like him to lead the toast and teach us how to say cheers properly in Turkish. 
No, that's right. It's nice and easy. It quite literally means to honor, but it is to say sheriffe. 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 Mm, penitential. <laughs> so, gentlemen, what has been your experience of Lewis prior to starting this podcast? Let's just fill in a little bit of the background and then we'll talk about your podcast proper. Mm. Yeah, well, I think talking about Lewis is uh, much like talking about my Christian testimony. It's kind of like uh, I've been a Christian as long as I can remember. I don't remember a time when Lewis wasn't in my life, you know? I know I read Narnia as a child, but I don't remember when. I know I remember, I had read Screwtape and Mere Christianity probably as a teenager, but I don't exactly remember those experiences. And I know I attempted reading Problem of Pain and Miracles as a young adult, probably in Bible school, when I was at the Bible school that Sean now is the president of. But yeah, Lewis was just always there in my life, kind of in the background, very helpfully. But it wasn't really until two years ago when I was in seminary that a professor assigned two essays to us during an apologetics-focused week, and my imagination really was rebaptized. And there was just something about Lewis that was reinvigorating among everything else I had been reading in, in seminary. And, um, and yeah, I will, I'll pick it up there when we talk about why we started the podcast, but Sean? Yeah, I, I, I'm more of a late bloomer than Jordan was in terms of, uh, in terms of the whole Lewis world. Uh, but, you know, like Jordan, and I'm sure most of, most of the listeners, I started with Narnia, same thing. But I, I took a read through Mere Christianity, probably my first or second year of college as well. And to be honest, it left me a little bit disinterested in Lewis. I didn't, I didn't, uh, it didn't connect with me at first. I, I wasn't a fan. But somewhat providentially, maybe a year later or so, at Christmas time, I was given screw tape. And reading through that, it was just the right time. It was the right time to, to encounter that side of Lewis's imagination that just illuminates something that we're so familiar with already, but just give it so much more nuance and color and meaning. And, and so, you know, we all know that Lewis just looms really large over kind of Protestant um, and evangelical thought in general. So he was always there. He was a part of the mosaic as, as I went through my education, theological ed- education. But actually, I, I got to say, Pines with Jack was, was yes. a big part of it for me. Um, as I was, when I was, that's right, win for, win for you guys is that uh, while I was living overseas, we had less access to, to you know, theological libraries and things like that. So when I, when I got a little hankering for some Jack, it, uh, it was through podcasts. And so um, while I lived in Turkey, I got exposed to a little bit more of uh, of who he was, and and then you know only a couple of years later moved into this podcast zone, which has drastically broadened my understanding of Lewis. Well, let's let's talk about that because Matt and I we started Pints for Jack obviously for the fame, the fortune, and the babes. Uh, but <laughs> why did you guys start one? Was Pints for Jack not good enough for you? What, what was the deal? we thought we got to fill all these holes that pints with jack is leaving no nothing of that nature yeah it's mostly a response podcast to pints (laughs) with jack we just let's let's we'll respond episode by episode here's what they got wrong no it was um like i said when i was in seminary i was falling in love again with lewis and i had this goal to read everything that i hadn't yet read by lewis and i started with the great divorce and with 
a collection of his essays, which I just grabbed. This is what I got, and um, I started there. And when I started going through The Great Divorce, that's when I found Pints with Jack. And I loved it, and I thought, this is excellent. And I, I really wish that there was something, uh, something like that for the essays. Mm. And I took a little look, and I couldn't find anything. And I since found out that I just didn't look hard enough. And there's things um, like William O'Flaherty's podcast, he does some essay chats. And uh, we actually will be recording with William uh, next week on our podcast. So I'm excited for that. But at the time, I was thinking, I wish there was, you know, people doing a deep dive on Lewis's essays to help walk through and, and kind of explore some more thoughts about what he's talking about. But I was in the middle of seminary at the time. And I didn't have time to do more than just think about it. And so I just kind of put the idea aside. But little did I know that my friend, Sean, who we hadn't really been in touch too much at the time. Well, I think he was in Turkey while I was having this experience. But uh, about a year later, maybe, Sean, you could pick up the story. Yeah. And I and I just happened to pick up when I moved back to Canada, I was fresh back in the country here and uh, I was reading a collection of Lewis's essays um, on literature and on reading. Uh, it was something that I came across there. And he recommended rereading. Um, he says, any great book is worth reading at least mm. once every 10 years. And I was really challenged by that because I'm more <laughs> of a volume than a depth reader. And and so I, I went back and I, you know, Jordan is is one of my friends whose opinions I trust. I said, hey, Jordan, um, what what are, you know, five nonfiction books that you would recommend that I read? And, uh, and he responded with Lewis. Yeah, I kind of joked. I said, uh, just so you know, probably most of my, like, can my whole list be Lewis? Yeah. And, and so then, yeah, that caught my attention um, uh, simply because this is all came from Lewis. And, and right away he gets back to me. He's like, hey, can we, can we talk about this idea that I have? And, and that for me, it, it felt like it really scratched an itch because um, in my at then fresh role here at the, at uh, Eston College, I, I could see, you know, I'm relating to pastors and, and ministry leaders often and, and uh, biblical scholars and that kind of thing. And then, of course, students as well. And it felt like a, a wide swath of the body of Christ could really be served by some of the ideas that Lewis explores, even if you don't um, agree completely with all his conclusions or his methods or that kind of thing. Uh, he is he's just such a force to be reckoned with. So I thought, ah, let's do this. This dovetails really well with with where I'm at. And I, I joked earlier about you guys finding gaps in Pints for Jack and it not being enough, but I was overjoyed when I found out what you guys were doing because honestly, it kind of took the pressure off a little bit because I have sketched out how long <laughs> it's going to take me to get through all of his corpus on Pints for Jack. And I was kind of worried about the essays. <laughs> kind of worried about the essays, kind of worried about the letters. I have a, another plan for that, yeah. but I'll reveal that some other time. But uh, when I when I knew that you guys were starting to tackle it, I was really happy because the entire point of Pints for Jack is to provide people with an on-ramp, get them enthusiastic about Lewis, help them wrestle with some of the things that he's talking about and uh, just point them at resources so they can read him more deeply. And it's really great that people are out there looking at the lesser known parts of Lewis's corpus. And also Lewis's essays is now probably the weakest part of my knowledge of him. 
it used to be poetry, but we had poetry mm. month last season. So yeah. I inhaled vast amounts of that over a short period of time. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's a wonderful education for myself to listen to you guys and then go back and read and listen to the essays themselves, as well as see all of the connection points between Lewis's individual essays and his major works, which is something that we will uh, do shortly, talking about religion and rocketry and the seeing eye. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's so many connection points, and and like you said, the essays are just they're a little daunting and and seem unappealing because when there's so many good fiction and nonfiction works of Lewis's and so many popular ones, and and you just want to get into all of those, you get especially like you get a cover like this, and it's just like essay collection. That just seems so unappealing. And I found um, when I was reading Horse and His Boy this year, there's this part where Erevis talks about the stories that people tell. And uh, she says that people prefer to read stories. And she has never heard of anyone who wanted to read the essays. (laughs) And I just thought, how true is that? Nobody wants to read the essays. Lewis himself is aware of it. But reading Lewis's essays, for me, I realized they are just as good, just as interesting. Mm-hmm. Really, all they are are basically chapters of his nonfiction stuff that never got put together with other chapters to form a book. So they're one-off chapters, and most of them are 10 to 15-minute reads. Mm-hmm. I don't think we've covered anything yet that uh, would take you more than half an hour mm-hmm. to read. No. In one sitting. So it's not like a, a big investment to read. And sometimes it's entire books. When people struggle with the abolition of man, I send them to go in and read The Poison of Subjectivism. Go read that. It is a yeah. much more accessible essay, but it's mm-hmm. also way quicker to read and you get the thrust of his point that you can then come back to the abolition of man and see the other things that he's mixing into into the cocktail, so to speak. That's it. Yeah, it's a good starting point. Yeah, I totally agree. And And many of them you know, have, uh, they're they're so punchy and they are so brief and and you you use the word, David, accessible. They're so accessible that uh, I found uh, that it fulfilled the need of some intellectual stimulation. But because Lewis is such a master of metaphor and such a master of simile and and of kind of thought experiment, that kind of thing, that he drew me in to these really abstract ideas Mm. and and, uh, almost tricked me because of how how well crafted his prose is i'm actually starting a local c.s lewis reading group our first meeting is in a week and a half and i've decided to start with one of his essays the weight of glory because mm. i don't know who can ever possibly read mm. that and not get excited <laughs> that's right yeah totally agree well let's talk about the podcast itself a little bit could you mind filling it in a little bit you know how's it structured how long do your episodes last what kind of material have you covered so far what are you thinking about doing in the future yeah well our episodes are mainly sean and i just having a conversation they're pretty casual we try to do two things the first is that we just walk through the content and hopefully you get a pretty good idea of what lewis says in the essay what his main point is the main themes and walk away with some of his best quotes. So in, in that way, you try, or hopefully you uh, you get to look at the essay, as it were. Mm-hmm. And and in terms of structure, we, we normally spend about an hour talking about each essay, or if they're very short essays and they, they cover the same theme, then we'll group them together. But then we break that into two conversations, so that'll be anywhere from 30 to 40 minutes. 
uh, per episode. We started doing that in season two. Season one, the episodes are a little bit longer, typically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've been experimenting as we've been learning how to podcast and getting feedback from listeners and more experienced podcasters and trying to learn different things. But yeah, our first season was a little bit of a beta test just to see even if uh, <laughs> a podcast was a, wor- a worthwhile endeavor. And um, what we attempted in our first season was to look at essays that were timely for our world at this moment. And it just feels like what's going on in the world, there's a lot of crisis and turmoil. And what got us excited about Lewis's essays to begin with was that there was so much that felt timely for our world today. So we looked particularly at those essays and we started with five <laughs> essays was our goal. We we're like, these five are so timely. Let's just do a little, a little short series on these five essays. And really quickly, those five essays turned into 13 essays. <laughs> And uh, so they were essays like, I won't list them all, but like on living in an atomic Mm. age, learning in wartime, the necessity of chivalry, equality, uh, meditation on the third commandment. And so we touched on things like the war in Ukraine, uh, a lot of politics stuff that came up, gender, social justice, a lot of COVID talk, COVID policies got in there. Uh, You didn't think that Lewis would be so um, prophetic in that way, but he really was. And it made me very uncomfortable at times uh, just to speak publicly uh, in this way. I'm not the sort of guy who likes to try and get his voice into these debates, but in a way I was comforted just being able to say, I'm not saying it, Lewis Lewis is saying it. And I think, I think he's got a good point in this case. Yeah. And then season two, uh, we stray more into devotional topics. Um, so we're talking about prayer and the Psalms and, and uh, Advent, you know, different um, things from the church calendar, Advent, uh, Christmas, and now we're into Lent, of course, as well. Uh, yeah. And, and again, Lewis just has so much in that, in that vein. Mm-hmm. And what about in future seasons? Do you know what you're going to be doing? Do you have plans? Yeah, we definitely do. We have some goals for all of our future seasons, which we'll speak to. And then maybe we'll tell you what our third season is, because we have plans at least as far as the third season coming up. But our goals for all of our seasons, now that we've kind of got our feet on the ground and have an idea of what we're doing as a podcast, we're going to take these first two seasons um, as goalposts, kind of, that we want to focus on keeping Lewis as timely for our world today. So whatever essay we're looking at, we're going to kind of be thinking, how is this timely for what's going on in our world today? Mm. As well as how is Lewis acting as a guide for our spiritual life? So, you know, how does this help us for our discipleship to Christ? So those kind of two things are going to be at the forefront of our minds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and that, that really evolved out of the fact that as we continue to read Lewis together, um, as friends and, and discuss it, that this, this theme of discipleship and being formed into the image of Christ is really the most important part of what Lewis has to offer. He has to offer, he has so much to offer and it's, it's not only that, but it's really the tip of the spear. So um, we, you know, we have three goals moving forward. Um, one is that every essay and kind of episode that we release of the podcast is edifying, spiritually speaking, that it's really practical. It's something that one of our parents could listen to or a freshman could listen to and, and get it and, and act on it. And of course, that it's Christ-centered. Um, this is about lesser-known Lewis, but I mean, Lewis 
was also a master at pointing upward to Jesus. And so um, in, in terms of his faith, we want to honor that and, and point to Christ. Mm. That's very similar to our own tagline where we talk about uh, exploring Christianity, uh, the truth and beauty through the lens of C.S. Lewis. He's the guy that we're looking through so we can see things a little bit more clearly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly it. I think that's our most important piece is that we want to be Christ-centered and like I was saying earlier, we, we try to do two things. The first is that we try to look at the essay, but we also try to look along the essay. So using that, that great picture from Lewis's essay, Meditation in a Toolshed, which we will be covering later this fall with special guests from Pints with mm-hmm. Jack on. So just a little <laughs> teaser there. But the idea that we would look along Lewis or maybe look along the essay to see who Lewis is always pointing to, and he's always pointing to Christ. And so in that way, we, we kind of hope, and we didn't plan this with our name, but we kind of hope that by the end of our episode, Lewis becomes lesser known so that Christ would become more well-known. That's really our whole heart with the whole podcast is, I mean, Sean and I, we do love Lewis, but at the end of the day, we love other things and other people, and we have other interests. Ultimately, we love Jesus, and Lewis is a means mm-hmm. to seeing Jesus better. So that's kind of our, our big goal with all of our seasons. But um, Sean, do you want to give a little sneak preview of our third season coming up? Uh, yeah, we're diving into some meat. We're going to start it this summer and um, get into one of my favorite topics, which is myth and, and myth and truth and, and uh, how that all works together. So we're, we're going to look at uh, things like on myth and metaphor. Um, and uh, myth became fact is theology, poetry, all those kinds of things too. Um, and like we already teased, we're going to be collaborating with you, David. Yeah. We're looking forward to it. <laughs> Great. We are too. And, and, and speaking of which, it's always fun hanging out with other people that podcast to sort of compare notes on experiences. Uh, so what do you say you've learned over the course of doing the show so far? I mean, each essay I walk away with personal learning in the form of like probably a personal repentance list (laughs) of things I need to uh, go pray about. Do you mean things like saying um or mouth sounds? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that is. Yes. Saying you know. Absolutely. I'm still editing all of our episodes and it. I can't stand myself anymore. I don't. I don't even want to talk <laughs> at all. But um, there, I just did it again. Uh, thinking more critically is something I'm learning from Lewis. Reading his writing, even in an essay like uh, "Why I'm Not a Pacifist," the first half of the essay he starts with saying, "Here's how you think critically." It's not even about pacifism or anything. He just says, before I explain to you why I'm not a pacifist, let me tell you how to think critically. And then I will use that critical thinking to explain my argument, things like that. But um, yeah, it's just, it's so helpful to read his writing because it helps you think and see more clearly. How about you, Sean? Yeah, um, a lot. I've learned a lot. And um of course, part of it is just the craft, but then a lot of it is that Lewis, Lewis is is not as bound. I think by by virtue of his uh, study of literature and history, he is not as bound by maybe the zeitgeist of his own personal age 
as other writers maybe or other thinkers and and just the the populace in general and and so when i i particularly remember reading living on an, in an atomic age and other things like it he he breaks us out of the idea that our circumstances and maybe this generation is just so historically unique mm. so we need to panic because we have no no uh example to follow and or pattern to live by or anything like that and uh, you know, I, I feel like reading Lewis more, especially these timely essays that we're talking about, has has made me a, a calmer, uh, more peaceful person and given me a lot more perspective on, mm. um, you know, both the beauty that we live through, you know, live um, uh, in and around, and also the reality that um, if it feels like there's a sword of Damocles dangling above our heads, there is, but that's okay because every human who's ever lived has lived that way. And I feel like, yeah, that's that's really kind of grown my my piece in the midst of a uh, social media and news cycle driven world. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's been the hardest thing about doing the podcast? <laughs> uh, brevity, you know, <laughs> Lewis. Lewis is so good, and I feel like even some some of his throwaway lines we could do an entire podcast on. And so, and and I mean, just doing it with a friend, as again, David, as you know having a conversation with friends over a couple of pints, which is, uh, you know, the way you've structured your, your show here is something that, that can just go on and on and on. And it's, and it's great that way. But, um, we try and be as, as brief as possible. If I'm honest, we could have a, a lesser known Lewis podcast that was just about any one of his essays. I, I guess I could say any one of his essays, we could go on and on. How about uh, Jordan? I don't know uh, how you'd answer that. Uh, for me, the hardest part is the feeling of imposter syndrome. <laughs> Just feeling like, why why are Sean and I the guys doing this podcast? It felt okay when when we just it was just Sean and I and then we put it out and we were just getting like our friends and family to listen. But then as soon as we started getting some people listening who we didn't know, all of a sudden I felt like, I don't know if we should be doing this because <laughs> <laughs> who are we? Like and it's one thing if you know, say we were trying to cover Narnia and we're just guys who like reading children's books and and you know anyone can have an opinion on a children's book but when you start digging into like lewis's essays it feels like maybe you should know a thing or two about a thing or two and i feel like i don't know if that's us but i guess yeah we're it was comforting david we um early on i reached out to you and and you were gracious enough to uh to facetime with me and you said you reminded us that we're we're amateurs and because we love Lewis, that's our, you know, that's our qualification. That's what we're doing. And we are bringing other lovers of Lewis along with us. And, and um, yeah, so, I mean, that's, that's what we're doing. But every time Sean and I sit down, I'm like, I don't know if we know enough to, to say anything about this. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you have to really lean into that amateur status. Uh, I actually want to incorporate mm -hmm. that into the intro next season, particularly if we're doing a, a heavy mm. book that I definitely feel out of my depth with. Um, but mm. Lewis himself says, I want to say it is in one of his essays, that very often the beginner can be a better teacher because the expert has forgotten what was even difficult in the first place. And so the very fact that you guys have struggled in some episodes over some of the content of the essays, I've actually really appreciated that because it's reminded me that Actually, not everything is super straightforward either in what, how he communicates it, although he's obviously generally very good. But also, a lot of the topics that he tackles are not simple topics. 
Mm-hmm. You keep on wanting to bring other objections and try and synthesize the whole. But for me, that's kind of the entire point of recording a podcast and listening to a podcast is to begin that, begin that struggle, begin that conversation and hear some mm-hmm. ideas from people that aren't me because I already know what I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Well, with that, let's transition and talk about a couple of essays. Because this season on the show, we have been reading through Out of the Silent Planet. And mm-hmm. uh, speaking of looking at and looking along, Dr. Ward speaks about Lewis's works as being looking at and looking along. Some of them are about experiential, like when we go to Malacandra with Ransom. And others are a little bit more looking at, like two essays, uh, The Seeing Eye and Religion and Rocketry, where Lewis more didactically tackles the issues which he's exploring in his narratives. So let's begin with The Seeing Eye. Now, you guys have looked at these essays on your show. What do you make of it? Uh, I I loved The Seeing Eye and Religion and and Rocketry. In my undergrad, I took some, uh, I took one lit course that was specifically just examined the interplay between Christianity and science fiction. And uh, I love that Lewis is a science fiction author. You know, he wouldn't be one that you would necessarily if you just saw a picture of him, you know, uh, from, from when he was alive, you wouldn't go, that guy's probably <laughs> thinking space and, you know, ray guns and all this kind of thing. But the seeing eye <laughs> is one of those, one of those essays where he tackles the the topic and, uh, it's an apologetic essay. It was written right from the year that he died. So he's got his, the, the full weight of his experience and, and knowledge to that point. And so he's actually defending the faith against the claim uh, that had been made um, recently in the news that um, that God was not found in space, therefore there is no God, mm. and and it's actually maybe a little bit hard for us now, I'd say, to put ourselves in the in into the audience shoes. There, I think this actually, David, might have been on a recent episode of Pints with Jack that I was hearing this, but I had it had not occurred to me that when when a lot of these early science fiction authors were writing, they had never seen an image of mm-hmm. Earth from space before. And so Lewis has to speculate about that in Out of the Silent Planet and some of the other writings. So, so in the same way, the Russians had gone to space and, um, and you know, a Russian said, oh, God's not up here, you know, classic. And, and uh, <laughs> Lewis responds and he says, we can neither reach nor avoid God by space travel. Um, he says in the essay, quote, space travel really has nothing to do with the matter. To some, God is discoverable everywhere and to others, nowhere. Those who do not find him on earth are unlikely to find him in space. Hang it all, we're in space already. Every year we go a huge circular tour in space, but send a saint up in a spaceship and he'll find God in space as he found God on earth. Much depends on the seeing eye. So of course, this is uh, this is the topic of, of the essay. So Lewis goes on and he makes a, a few analogies about how, how silly it is um, to even ask this question. And he, he uh, likens it to trying to find the person of Shakespeare or the person of Dante. Mm in their writings. And, uh, and he says, that's a different kind of finding. You need a different quote apparatus for finding them. You know, of course he, he makes some analogies to the incarnation and how Jesus, God, you know, he steps into his own story in the incarnation, but he, he, he kind of leaves it there and, and says that the methods of science don't help us discover that kind of fact. That's just not how it works. We need a different kind of, of seeing eye. So, you know, the problem is not external. The problem is not can we find God, you know, in Arizona uh, or in in Brisbane 
or or wherever or space for that matter um and can he be discovered but it's internal and uh, do we have the ability to see what's actually out there that's what this what this whole essay is discussing what's real what's true and maybe i guess just to to open up all of that um uh, a little bit more just to say you know what is that seeing eye what is what is lewis suggested is to us it's that faculty of recognition of god mm. he says you know and there, there's when we discuss this we actually covered this essay already in our podcast but when we discuss this you know there's there's different ways that we could answer that question maybe us and probably a lot of different ways but uh, lewis kind of turns it on its head as he is wont to do and he says it's not so much um, that we need to find God as allow God to find us. And uh, he builds a case for God, quote, being the hunter and us being the deer. That's that's kind of where he's at. I think, though, germane to it being Lent, um, relevant to our Lenten season, Lewis talks about God finding him, you know, this analogy of, of God being the hunter and, and Lewis being the deer. He says that that came at a time when he was making a really serious effort to obey his own conscience. Mm. So um, maybe that our seeing eye is uh, is fundamentally about humility, and then just uh, that that conscience itself, with the help of humility, maybe is that that seeing eye, that faculty of of recognition of seeing God. I love Andrew, but if he was here, he'd already be talking about Orwell and her attempts to be a good queen and her encounter with the God. So thank you very much, Jordan. <laughs> This is the other thing that happens when you podcast with people for a long time. You just know how they're going to respond to stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I, I, and I know um, it's funny because listening to your guys' last few episodes that you've released anyway, up until we're recording this, you guys have been talking a lot about these ideas about at least the last one that you put out about arrival and on chapter seven and eight. You talked about the ideas of how our expectations get shattered by reality, that reality is iconoclastic. Hmm. And um, the thing that I think Lewis helps clarify in this essay about that is that it's these two things, humility and following one's conscience, that's how our expectations get dismantled. And we're able to see reality more clearly is through humility and following our conscience. And so, and we see that in Out of the Silent Planet is that's what set, sets Ransom apart from the other two human counterparts that he's with, is his humility and his, his making a serious effort to obey his conscience throughout the book. Even at the beginning, the thing that locks him into his journey is his choice to follow and go look for Harry. Harry, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, he just, He's not really sure what to do, but he follows his conscience and, and does it. But Lewis says in The Seeing Eye that you're, it's in your conscience that you're most likely to find God. And he explores that more in, in Letters to Malcolm also, but it's there in your conscience that you, you're going to hear God speaking and you will see God. And so that's why you'll only see God depending on the sort of person you are which is, again, that idea from the magician's nephew. Because if you're not the sort of person who's open to listening, or the sort of person who, when you've heard God speak, you're humble enough to receive his correction, or willing to obey it, or you're not the sort of person who has the courage to act, or the sort of person who 
will then trust God's voice when you've heard him speak. You know, you're not the sort of person who will, in the end, say that they have found God. Whether that's in your prayer time or in a worship service, or whether that's in your deepest lows or in your highest highs, whether that's on earth or in space, you're not going to find God. Either way, it depends on the sort of person you are. And so then that made me think of the end of Out of the Silent Planet. And I, I'll try not to give a spoiler for this if, it, if anyone's not heard it or got there yet, but Weston and Divine, they come face to face with a divine being of sorts, and they can hear it, the, the divine being, but they can't see it. And they don't really believe that it's a real thing. They think they're being tricked. And so just like these Russian astronauts, they've come to space and they still can't see God because they aren't humble and they aren't making a serious effort to obey their conscience. And so what I love about Out of the Silent Planet is it's this story of Ransom's conversion through seeing. Like it's all about his his openness to change, his humility, and his journey of of seeing differently. And I think epistemology is the right mm-hmm. word, but it's also a word that just confuses because I I still don't know what that word means. <laughs> <laughs> no, the word that really confuses is ontology. That's the one that confuses everybody. <laughs> yes, yeah, I- yeah. Let's. Uh, I've got I've written essays upon essays on both those words, and every time I have to look them up. <laughs> But the story arc is that like Ransom's character development happens through him learning the language of Malacandra, and as he learns the language, then he learns the story of their world. And as he learns the story of their world, he also learns the story of his own world, and he comes to see his own world differently. Hmm. And that gives him a different perspective of his own world. And then as he learns the stories, he begins to understand. And as he begins to understand, then he begins to gain sight. After he comes to understand things differently, then he can see the Eldils, right? And then at that point, he's brought to see Oyarsa. So finally, he can see a, a divine being in space because he's become the sort of person and he's gained the, the necessary apparatus for doing so. And it happens to him and not Weston and Divine because he's humble and he follows his conscience and his inner voice when it leads and where it leads. And he's constantly willing to readjust his sight and discover where he was wrong. And so it's a story about learning and coming to know and, and being brought to see a God and conversion. And yeah, so it's all about this seeing eye essay. It's, it really is the looking at counterpart which I just find so fascinating. But I think that's the overall big picture, how they go together. But I I noticed that there's all these little things that Lewis weaves in through the narrative elements and just phrases that he sticks in there. And they started standing out to me and I started losing track. I was trying to write them all down as I was re-listening to the book. And um, it's I started feeling like... Uh, <laughs> the lists that Michael Ward gives of all the occurrences of, you know, the 
planets in the different Narnia books. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, at, at one or two, you start going, oh, I think it's a coincidence. But then there starts to be so many, I'm thinking, I don't think it's a coincidence By number anymore. 78, you're convinced, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Exactly, yeah. It's not a coincidence, but a conspiracy. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. It's just like in a good conspiracy. Yeah. But you guys, you guys pointed out one, which was in chapter seven, when Ransom gets out of the spaceship on Malacandra, um, Lewis writes, he gazed about him and the very intensity of his desire to take in the new world at a glance defeated itself. He saw nothing but colors, colors that refused to form themselves into things. Moreover, he knew nothing yet well enough to see it. You cannot see things till you know roughly what they are. And it's just it's just that idea of you you can't see things till you know roughly what they are. And then there's a little one tucked in again at the end of the book, and it doesn't spoil anything. But Ransom sees two tiny moons over Malacandra, and uh, Lewis writes that Ransom reflected that the tiny moons were among the thousand things he had not noticed during his sojourn there. And I'm like, it's just that idea that. You could not see two moons that are right in front of your face the whole time, but you don't see them because there's so much going on or you're just not aware, but you might not see things even though they exist. And then the other one, which I think is so fascinating, is um, in chapter nine, when Ransom first encounters the cross. The creature, first of all, it gradually comes into focus, which is interesting that he doesn't see it at first. I think you guys pointed that out. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the chapter, Ransom has this moment of realizing that they're rational animals, and he just thinks about that. He, He kind of thinks, depending on how you look at it, either that's a charming and delightful thing that this otter like being is also intelligent, like himself. Or it's an abominable, disgusting thing that it's basically this giant man with a snaky body covered in hair. And the last line of the chapter is, it all depended on the point of view, Mm. which is the main line from the essay is, much depends on the seeing eye. So it's just that, that same idea. But this idea of what if aliens were rational creatures uh, gets picked up in the next essay we're going to talk about. So I don't know, Sean, you, when we talked about this essay, you had some thoughts about spiritual implications. Maybe you wanted to share those before we get to the next essay. Uh, yeah, I can just even just really briefly, I think that this comes up in, in, uh, in scripture, um, Psalm 136, and this is kind of quoted in Jonah as well. If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my beds in the depths, you're there. So that's that's about that you know capacity to see God in either of those places. You can be in the heavens or in the depths and and not see Him or experience Him everywhere. The other thing that I will say is that I, I feel like Lewis is is he's um, and and I would like to hear your thoughts on this too, David. As you've been reading through, I feel like he was a little bit before his time, especially as kind of a son of the empire mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, as a British man in the 30s who is a World War One vet. To say uh, he was part of his reflections on space really come from how he reflected on colonialism and and the advance of the British Empire around the world and and what had happened and how he said hey I think that and 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 he recognizes that as something that's intrinsic to human beings 
It's not, it's not as if it's a, you know, a British problem. <laughs> it's, it's that all empire is this way, you know? And so I, yeah, I wondered about that, you know, cause he, he, um, when he gets to space, um, ransom or sorry, divine and, um, Weston, when, when they step off the, the ship, they see only exploitation and, and then, you know, as Jordan has been describing, there's another way of seeing. There's another way of seeing that allows access. Mm. So I, I wondered about mm. any of your thoughts as you've been reflecting on that. Mm. I think the key thing is to remember that despite my greatest wishes, Lewis wasn't English. He was Irish. Right. And although he spent much of his life in England, he was well aware of how English, specifically English exploits, had ripped his own country apart. The, the tensions that had created there. Also, he wasn't ignorant. He was a very well-read man and he knew the history of colonialism and he knew that while there were some good things that came out of it, there was also an awful lot of tragedy. So I, I don't think you can really be a student of much history or much literature before coming across the dark side of those kind of colonial and imperialistic attempts, even if they were, at least by some people, uh, proceeding from the best of motives, even if we could reach such purity of intention, you still see the results and they're pretty messy. Hmm. Well, on that clangor of a note, let's talk about <laughs> religion and rocketry, which I think is actually my favorite of these two hmm. essays. Uh, what did you make of it? And what connections can you draw to out of the silent planet? Sure. Let me, uh, let me give you another quick summary. This one is uh, religion and rocketry. This is an essay, an article rather written Nearly 20 years after Out of the Silent Planet was written. So again, he's had lots of time to, to um, refine some of his ideas here that may have been developed at that time. Um, but it's earlier than The Seeing Eye. Also an apologetic piece, of course. Um, and in this one, Jack's narrowing his defense um, specifically to the question of what if it turned out that there were aliens? You know, a theme well explored in Out of the Silent Planet. He, he says, wouldn't that provide a challenge to the Christian teaching that humans are uniquely favored by God as demonstrated in the incarnation and of course the redemption of Jesus. So basically Lewis, he, he, he looks down his nose a little bit at the idea that um, finding life on other planets would be a threat. Uh, Cause he says, you know, first of all, we have to find out whether these creatures are rational and spiritual. And then not only that, but are they fallen? Of course, then as well, a strong theme that comes out of the space trilogy is the fallenness of our own planet and our own human race, uh, as opposed to these other planets and races. And so um, if they're fallen, you know, and again, he's, he's building his case. He goes along and says, yes, they're rational. Yes, they're spiritual. If they're fallen, are they able or unable to receive Christ's redemption? And not only that, but if they're, they can receive Christ's redemption, then how do they receive it? And so again, just very, very methodical in his thought process here, the thought that he develops um, where he says, um, what is the mode of redemption for them? Something that we can't know right away. And says only then after, if it turns out that there's some other way that they would access that redemption, only then might that pose a theological challenge to Christianity. Otherwise, there's no challenge. There's just no challenge. And so he, he goes through why he thinks that's unlikely, but, um, but he speculates for us. And, and says, what if Christ was incarnate in other ways? And again, uh, the, the listeners will immediately, hopefully, their minds will spring to Aslan. Mm -hmm. uh, another good Turkish word there, by the way. Aslan is the mm -hmm. word for lion mm -hmm. in Turkish. 
Um, but uh, they they think of Aslan right away and and how you know Christ makes himself known in Narnia as a lion. But of course, in Scripture, if we remember Romans chapter twelve, um, it really talks about that the the cosmic implications of salvation and how creation itself is groaning mm. for redemption. And so there is an eager expectation that exists. In, and, it, and it does just say creation there. It doesn't say, you know, the most rational creatures. <laughs> Friend was telling me about uh, some of the primates that have learned up to 4,000 words in sign language and how, how certain kinds of apes can actually expand their own vocabulary beyond what they're taught by human beings. So it's like there's a level of rationality even in creatures on earth. And we see again from scripture, um, Romans chapter 8, that there is um, that those same creatures are waiting for redemption. They're waiting for the revelation, as as uh, Romans says, of the mm. sons and uh, uh, daughters of God, the children of God. And so does our redemption and the redemption that Christ has brought to planet Earth affect the rest of the entire cosmos? Is that all of creation? And how do we imagine unfallen races of aliens and that kind of thing? So, and I'm sure that's going to give you both lots of fodder <laughs> to chat over as we, as we, we shift into out of the silent planet. But again, Lewis keeps us a little bit grounded as much as we are talking about science fiction and life on other planets and that sort of thing. He says, um, basically makes the argument that the reality is speculating on the spiritual state of, of aliens is kind of pointless because we know our own spiritual state. And he brings it back to humanity. And, uh, and I'll quote Lewis here. He says, we are fallen. We know that our race, sorry, we know what our race does to strangers. Man destroys or enslaves every species he can. Civilized man murders, enslaves, cheats, and corrupts savage men. Even inanimate nature, he turns into dust bowls and slag heaps. There are individuals who don't, but they are not the sort who would be likely to be our pioneers in space. Our ambassadors to new worlds will be the needy and the greedy adventurers or the ruthless technical expert. They will do as their kind has always done. Oh yeah, and this is so. I said earlier, David, brevity is is one of the challenges of doing this podcast. I feel like that quote, and I I kind of want to grab uh, grab Lewis and be like, "What do you mean by this?" Because again, next season we're going to talk about myth and the hero's journey and how that adventuring spirit is actually a necessary kind of like energizing archetype in our myth myths um, and. Not what we're talking about right now, but I feel like I had to say that because I can't wait to explore it <laughs> next next season on Lesser Known Lewis. Um, but uh, but yeah, Lewis Lewis says, listen, we, we're fallen people, and this is a problem because we bring our fallenness and our corruptness, maybe is a better word to say that, to wherever we explore. So having said that, let me just lay that there. That is the kind of the thrust of the the argument of uh, of religion and rocketry. Uh, Jordan, you have anything to add there? Well, yeah, I just needed to make a note here to bring that up next season to to springboard you into whatever you were holding back there. But oh, I'm um, all fired. I'm all fired up good. about it. Yeah, <laughs> good. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the, yeah, that quote enough is just proof that this essay really is kind of a starting point for a character study of Weston and Divine. Mm-hmm. And if that last quote wasn't enough, there's another one where Lewis, he's theorizing that if we did find aliens, how could we tell if the creature was really a rational or spiritual animal? So like Sean's saying, you know, there's, there's primates that are pretty smart and can speak. Does that mean it's rational? Does that mean it has a spirit? How do we know at what point 
should we be trying to evangelize apes? At what point is it the same as a human in its rationality or spirituality? But so Lewis says this, he says, by a rational soul, I include not merely the faculty to abstract and calculate, but the apprehension of values, the power to mean by good, something more than good for me, or even good for my species. And already, you know, we start thinking of Weston and Divine and their motives, mm-hmm. which then starts raising questions of like, well, then are Weston and Divine human and have we- rational souls and spirits? But then the quote continues, Lewis says, even if we met aliens, we might not find it so easy to decide. It seems to me possible to suppose creatures so clever that they could talk, though they were really only animals, capable of pursuing only natural ends. One meets humans, the machine-minded and materialistic urban type, who look as if they were just that. (laughs) As Christians, we must believe the the appearance to be false. Somewhere under that glib surface, there lurks, however atrophied, a human soul. Savage. Mm. Yeah. Lewis, he's just ripping in, <laughs> ripping into his poor neighbors, hey? I don't know who he's imagining there, but uh, yeah. You know he has someone in mind. And, I think he has uh, lots I mean, of people Weston in mind. And, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's he's right. definitely got Weston and Divine in mind, at least. Mm-hmm. But then he he continues and he has these aliens in mind as well, the ones that he's written about in other Out of the Silent Planet, at least. He says, in other worlds, there might be things that really are what these seem to be, these uh, atrophied human souls. Conversely, there might be creatures genuinely spiritual whose powers of manufacture and abstract thought were so humble that we should mistake them for mere animals. God shield them from us. And it's for that reason that Lewis suggests that maybe the vast distances between planets, our Earth, and alien life is God's quarantine precautions, which is the quote that you read at the beginning of this episode, David. And not quarantine precautions keeping aliens from coming and wiping out the precious human life on Earth, (laughs) though human life is precious, um, but keeping... (laughs) the precious creatures on other planets from being infected by the virus of human sin, which is a really humbling thought. And it's the father of a toddler. Sometimes you want to separate your kid from the other kids. It's like, I don't want my kid learning <laughs> your kid's stuff. <laughs> I couldn't agree more with that statement. Yeah. It's probably like that. Yeah. But it, for me, it just, it reminds me of those like Elon Musk, I think Lewis would contradict those with that impulse who are saying, we've got to find, we've got to get out there and find other planets because we are destroying this one and making it uninhabitable. And we've got to find another one before it's too late and we become extinct here. I think Lewis would say, you know, do we just, if we've, destroyed this one, do we deserve to go somewhere else and destroy that one? Because wouldn't we just be taking the problem with us? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Again, bring it back to the toddler example. If you've broken this yeah. toy, I'm not going to give you another one. What do I expect is <laughs> going to happen this time? Exactly. exactly right. mm-hmm. Like if we're the problem, we wouldn't have solved the problem by finding another planet. We would only be prolonging the problem and extending the reach of the problem. 
Because mm-hmm. the problem is us and our sin. And so the good news, um, the solution to the problem isn't somewhere out there waiting for us uh, to get so technologically advanced and be able to discover salvation on another world, like with breathable air and good soil. The good news of Christianity is that we already have the solution. The good news has come here from another world, from heaven. And the good news is Jesus. He brought heaven to earth and he brought the solution to our problems here now. And the question is, will we let him solve our problems? Let that good infection, as he describes it in mere Christianity, take through our race before we start propagating it throughout the galaxies. Mm-hmm. There it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's really the question of the essays that we are going through in our Lent series, which we're just, well, I guess, just starting out today, being Ash Wednesday. But um, yeah, Sean, what were your reflections on this one? Well, it, I mean, broadly speaking, I think that um, speculative fiction, which includes fantasy and science fiction and all the subgenres of such, are really helpful in helping us to step just enough outside of our own context and our own stories to see our own circumstances through a new light. And and that's what I believe Lewis is doing here um, with us and that he does expertly in Out of the Silent Planet. And so when, when, I, when I bring to bear what I've learned from science fiction into missiology, you know, Lewis encourages us to, to be really aware of our, our kind of imperialistic tendencies, our, you know, our, our exploitation tendencies. And, and to start with listening, Jordan, you already, you already alluded to the fact that as he learns the language of Malacandra, um, that's when he can perceive what's going on properly in the planet. And I think that that is something in all of our cross-cultural interactions, whether they be evangelistic or not, that that is um, just a, a powerful principle first understand from the inside. And, and I think, you know, as somebody who's lived cross-culturally in a Muslim-majority context as a, as a believer and, and shared my faith, that, uh, and, and, I, and I very much believe, like, I, I hope that all of those friends of mine, those acquaintances that I had in, in Turkey would come to faith in Christ. I also know that in, if, if they were to make that decision, um, they would become no less Turkish. Uh, just to use a really clear example. And we've made mistakes in the past here in our own context here in Canada is a fantastic example where where we came in so much looking for resources and looking to exploit this fertile place that we actually missed out on a, on a great opportunity to encounter God through the image of God in the people who are already here mm-hmm. and to learn in humility from them. So, um, you know, oftentimes um, those who are doing missions would do better to learn from those that they are reaching out to rather than start by teaching them. Hmm. Well, Sean, since you lived in Turkey, just as we wrap up, you're going to have to settle a perennial question of the C.S. Lewis uh, community. Is Turkish delight good? (laughs) I love that you're asking me that. The answer is obviously subjective, except for not actually subjective. It is nothing to sell your family out over. (laughs) I have had, I have had like, world-class locum, they call it, Turkish delight, and it is okay at best. <laughs> and so, so if the white witch ever offers you Turkish delight, um, just say no. Or, or maybe only sell out maybe a third cousin twice removed that you don't really like. 
<laughs> that's exactly right sell out whoever lewis was talking about earlier in, in the episode the um the people with those atrophied human souls that yeah. might be okay but uh but no i would say if they're gonna i mean if edmund is gonna sell out for anything it should be baklava oh mm. no no dispute here i completely agree i'm glad you're on board with that <laughs> in fact when i went to a maronite church in london when as you were leaving they were handing out something that was awfully similar to it as in it was a tiny little pastry mm. it had like nuts and honey and everything else it wasn't quite the same as baklava but it was awfully close and i just thought that was an amazing strategy at church if i think if more churches hand out free baklava <laughs> as people are leaving attendances would go right up yeah maybe that's what you should do at your uh, your c.s lewis um, reading club yes I, I like that i like that that's what i'm gonna do <laughs> Shauna Jordan, thank you so much for coming on the show. As I hear the landlord ring the bell for final drinks, can you tell people more about where they can find out about your podcast and listen to it? Uh, it's been an honor and a delight, David. Thank you so much for having mm -hmm. us. Um, if if someone wants more, uh, they can search Lesser Known Lewis on all major podcast apps. You can listen to us there or uh, on Facebook and Instagram, Lesser Known Lewis. And you can also um, follow uh, little updates and extra Lewis-related content on either of those social media platforms as well. And if you just want more info on us or want to find our episodes organized a little more nicely than the podcast apps tend to have us, um, we have a webpage, which is kindly hosted at pintswithjack.com slash LKL or lesser hyphen known hyphen Lewis is another way to do it. That's a great website. Yeah, it is a great website. Go check yeah. out that whole Pints with Jack deal. But uh, uh, new as of last week, patreon.com slash lesser known Lewis. If you would like to uh, support us there. Um, I know uh, I'm, I'm really the weak partner in this, in this partnership. Jordan's the one who does a lot of the work. And so if you want to help Jordan, um, Jordan out financially, especially, uh, you can go to patreon.com slash lesser known Lewis. In virtually every single podcast that I've known where there's a pairing of people, there's always a Matt and there's always a David. It's just the way of things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Although I'm a pretty big Taylor Swift fan. So <laughs> I don't know. I think that only makes you half now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Well, bent ones aside, thanks again to Sean and Jordan for coming on the show. And thank you to all of our listeners, patron supporters, particularly our top tier supporters, Matt, Jake, James, Erica, Marvin, Joelle, Deborah, Amanda, Thomas, Bud, Bill, Shane, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Ghost, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, James, Kate, Peter, David, Angela, and Rowdy. We pray for our listeners every Tuesday and along with all of the prayer requests from our Slack channel. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please go and subscribe to Lesson Known Lewis podcast and start reading some of Jack's essays. And please join us next time when we'll go further up and further in. Cheers. 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 Cheers.